Content warning. This episode includes graphic descriptions of police brutality and civil unrest. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Descent, a podcast hosted by me, Moon Ali. This podcast explores the stories of community organizers who look to solve global issues in their own backyards. I'm grateful to have had enlightening conversations with activists from around the U.S. who are united in one common mission, improving the lives of the communities around them. Today's episode is an interview with Janelle Austin, a Minnesota-based activist who is the lead caretaker of the George Floyd Memorial. Janelle also serves as the founder of Racial Agency Initiative, an organization that engages with racial justice on both a personal and institutional level. As you'll see in my conversation with Janelle, she is a visionary, a determined, passionate soul who tirelessly works to understand racial injustice. Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Janelle Austin. Today I'm speaking with Janelle Austin. Uh, She's the founder of the Racial Agency Initiative. Um, Janelle, if you could give a brief introduction about who you are, where you're located, and uh, what kind of organizing work you do. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, my name is Chanel Austin, and uh, as she's, as Muna said, I am the founder of Racial Agency Initiative, which is uh, a company that works with people to help them leverage their agency for racial justice. Um, I actually never really considered myself a community organizer until this summer. (laughs) Some of my friends would beg to differ, but um, right now I'm in the space of working in the intersection of 38th and Chicago, uh, more affectionately known as George Floyd Square. And that is the intersection where George Floyd was lynched um, on May 25th, 2020. Um, and so I participate with my community and um, a lot of folks who are holding space to advocate um, and expect justice. Um, and so we, we work with people to figure out what are the needs and build community so that um, we can attempt to do our best job to live out what we believe, what a, a a just community should be and should look like um, as we expect the same things of our um, our political leadership. So I think that's a, a good enough summary. <laughs> I know you have a ton of questions and I think they're awesome questions. And so yeah. um, we'll just flow through this. Yeah. Um, so how did you begin Racial Agency Initiative? Like, what's the story behind that? How'd you get involved with it? Absolutely. Um, so I had been doing um, formal, like race, racial justice work, race reconciliation work, whatever folks want to call it, uh, since like 2003-ish. Um, I had been doing a lot of race facilitation work when I was in college. I had designed a conference on race um, and at launched it. I designed it my junior year, launched it my senior year. Um, when I went to grad school, I designed programming for 
um, incoming students uh, to navigate conversations around race and diversity. I facilitated tons of different conversations, um, formation groups. I've designed all kinds of different groups along the way. Um, and then finally, my friends were like, Janelle, you need to just start your own like company and stop giving away your ideas for free. Um, <laughs> but that took a while. That took a long while for me to actually um, take the leap of faith, quit my job in uh, June 30th, 2018. Um, and I moved to Austin, Texas, because I honestly, I had burned out like all of the civil unrest and, and protests that had been happening since Trayvon Martin yeah. had just really taken its toll on me. And um, I had did a lot of heavy lifting to help support other people, but I hadn't done the proper balance with self-care. And I burned out and I probably slept for like six months after I quit my job and <laughs> moved to another state. Actually, I quit my job, moved to another state that I had never lived in before. I moved to Texas. I was the time I was in California because I had stayed out in California for grad school. Um, and I moved to Texas and just slept for six months. And then after six months, I woke up and I was like, okay, let me get, I was in Austin, Texas. And I said, let me learn the vibe of what uh, the race conversations here are in Austin. Um, and so I started participating, engaging in community. And then I stumbled across through my cousin. Um, I stumbled across this business organization that actually developed uh, women entrepreneurs, especially women of color um, entrepreneurs. And I never really saw myself as an entrepreneur, but I knew I wanted to start this company. And so I was like, I don't have any business background. So I knew I needed to actually um, just, sit, listen, and glean all I could. And so it was through that process of going through several different uh, workshops and classes that I finally just took the leap of faith in uh, August 2019 and said, all right, I'm going to start my company. And I decided to uh, focus it on um, helping and encouraging people to pursue racial justice uh, with joy, or the vision is uh, people pursuing racial justice with joy. Because in my experience of being burned out, I realized that a lot of that had to do was because I was drawing on the wrong energy sources to fight racial injustice. Right. Um, and a lot of those energy sources were anger, rage, frustration, fear, like all the negative stuff. Now, yeah. negative energy is bad. And um, I mean, sorry, is not bad. Negative energy is not bad. Negative energy is just negative. And so, <laughs> and, and it serves a purpose. Like we have all those emotions for a reason. And for so many people, it gets them off the couch. It gets them um, in a space where they want to do something because they feel that emotion and that is so important, but it's not sustainable energy. And so I needed to pivot. If I, I knew that if I were going to do this work long-term, which I had been doing, um, I would burn out severely again if I didn't find a different energy source and um, through my time of just uh, quieting myself preparing myself um, navigating my own healing I realized that joy joy was a kind of sustainable energy a different kind of emotion that could help 
uh, people pursue the work of racial justice, move the needle of racial justice forward, and delay burnout. Joy is a sustainable energy, uh, kind of like a complex carbohydrate. It's going to give you more energy longer, as opposed to sugar, which is going to give you that surge and then a crash. So I, that's how I tend to see like negative energy and positive energy. Negative energy is a energy that can be utilized. It's just not sustainable, um, which means you have to have more of it. You have to consume more of it to keep going further. But negative energy is also going to have um, a, a bad effect on your health. Interesting. Um, yeah, I hadn't and, thought about it that way. It's really interesting. Right? Like, Isn't yeah. that crazy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so you think about like the uprising in Minneapolis this summer, how like people were burning down buildings and I would, I would tell people, I was like, you know what, I am not going to stand in between a building and somebody's rage. I just won't. Um, and so, but what I also do understand is that that rage can eat a person up inside. So not everybody like actually exerted their rage um but a lot of people had rage and so i feel like the number of people who are actually out in society releasing the negative energy was only a fraction of the people who had it everyone else were trying to find positive outlets um but it was it was challenging for all of us like it was really challenging for all of us. Um, but like too much of it, if it stays inside, man, that can consume you and um, it, it can be a bad thing. Um, but where joy, so where joy comes in, it's, it's recognizing that we're not gonna wait until um, a particular event happens to actually advocate and fight for racial justice. Right. Yeah. We're not going to wait till we see somebody lynched on a video, on a cell phone footage, um, before we actually stand up and fight for racial justice. What Joy says is like, wait a minute, let me assess the things that I'm good at. Let me assess my strengths. Um, and because when we do, have you ever had those moments where you do something that you're really good at and you know you're really good at and then you accomplish it and you just feel like, yeah, I did that. Yeah, that like sense of accomplishment. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Because when we do something that we know we're already good at, like that helps build our confidence and that helps build us up. And that um, gets us a little bit further in terms of where we're going. And so I began to imagine with my company, well, what does it look like to actually lean on people's strengths, work with people to see what they are already good at, and then build that up and build upon that um to actually help guide them to actually practice racial justice as a way of life using their strengths because that means every time they do something that it moves the needle of racial justice forward inside their strengths that's going to give them uh feedback of joy and it's going to help them want to actually keep going and do it again and do it again because it's positive affirmation like it's self-positive affirmation to say hey right. i actually can do this thing um and so like that's the goal is getting people to pursue racial justice as a way of life, um, leverage their agency for racial justice, who they already are, where they already work, where they already live, where they already share third space, whether that is in libraries or coffee shops or um, skating rinks or what, what have you, 
like being able to say like, if I see an injustice, I'm going to stand up for what's right. Um, because I know that this is the space in which I thrive and I work and this, these are my talents. And then, so then when a particular event does happen, when a particular uh, outcome does happen, people are already conditioned in their strengths and they know how to respond in that moment in a way that will give them life and give their community life. Right. So um, you talked a lot about like positive energy, negative energy. How does one break out of the shell of negative energy? How does one, um, I guess, leave the sugar and go to the carbohydrate? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> right. Because we, we all have to do it. it discipline. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think just like sugar is addictive. And I say that as somebody who is like has the biggest sweet tooth in the entire world. Um, and so what it's, it's, it's sheer discipline to be able to say, you know, I am not going to wait for a moment in which like I have that much rage and anger. Um, so when I, when I work with people, I start by affirming their strengths, learning what their strengths are, affirming those strengths and then helping them, uh, create ideas on things that they can do to practice leveraging their strengths. Um, so I think that's, I think that's been, that's just key, um, key thing to do is just identify the things that give you joy and lean into that, practice that, uh, take on the discipline, take on the work. Um, otherwise, uh, typically what will happen is we'll just, um, keep waiting till the moments that give us rage we'll wait till the we'll wait until somebody gives us sugar <laughs> right, right. Um, for our energy as opposed to saying no i'm gonna eat good food now i'm going to eat my vegetables and i'm gonna eat breakfast and right, right. um i'm gonna it's 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 discipline racial justice is a discipline um, and so I actually, there, I was on the phone the other day with a young woman in Florida and, um, we are kind of doing the same work. Uh, the work that I'm doing here in, uh, uh, where am I? I'm in Minneapolis. Sorry. I was about to say California. <laughs> no, I was like, I am not in California anymore. Um, <laughs> and then I jumped to Texas and then I was like, okay, no, I'm in Minneapolis. I have moved too much. I've lived all over the country, um, including the East coast. But uh, Minneapolis is where I was born and raised, though. So I, it, for me, it was coming home. And um, but uh, anyways, what, what to get back on track? Um, yeah, I think if we are constantly waiting for like a moment to come to feel the energy, to feel the adrenaline rush, to feel the rage, um, that's it's too late. Honestly, right. it's, it's too late. We won't be able to think. We won't be able to organize. We won't be able to strategize. Uh, we won't be able to move and operate effectively to actually accomplish what justice looks like or what we believe and feel that justice ought to look like. Um, and, and so and it takes discipline, just like any sport or job or work. Um, we have to be able to... Uh, install the practice in our lives and so when the testing and trials come we're, we're ready for the moment we know exactly what we're supposed to do we know our jobs we know our position like any other field in life we trade for it 
Yeah. Um, so earlier you talked a lot about, you know, being burnt out and like moving as a result. Self-care is obviously like really important in your line of work. Um, how do you take care of your mental health during mentally taxing times in your life? How do you um, channel into your inner joy? Absolutely. So um, I, in 2018, like, so when I burned out and I moved to Texas, one of the first things on my list was to actually get a, um, what do we call it? A therapist. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I got a therapist. And I know like in, in Black culture, that is something that can actually be taboo. And I grew up in a family where like mental illness, not just mental health, because mental health is something that everybody has, right? And mental health is a spectrum. So mental illness, though, I had diagnosed on both sides of my family, on my mom's side and my dad's side. So just understanding that that was a reality, but I had my parents responded to mental illness very differently. So my dad was the kind of person who would like clench up and was like, I don't want to talk about it because it was a point of embarrassment for him in terms of um, engaging family members who had serious conditions. And then on my mom's side, my grandmother had modeled um, being able to actually seek help and get help. And then that was okay. My grandmother actually went back to school to become a social worker. So that way she could actually um, take care of her uh, family who suffer from mental illness. And so uh, because of that, like I had, I had a choice to make. I had a choice was of, am I going to follow in the trajectory of my father or am I going to follow in the trajectory of my mother? Will I uh, seek help or will I ignore and pretend that it's nothing and I can just will myself out of it, you know? Um, And so I decided that I was going to get a therapist because uh, while, while I was living in California, I also, I went to seminary. So that's where I did my grad school education. I went to Fuller Theological Seminary and um, Fuller is unique in that it has a school of psychology and it trains therapists in the Christian tradition um, and it helps. And I had some several uh, uh, friends who were black and navigating the taboo and black culture of therapy and religion and um, and and I watched them and we worked and we talked and we engaged and really um, worked together to try to say, okay, how can we help bring mental health um, resources to our community and help undo the taboo? So I had this kind of background, this privileged background of being able to um, be okay with embracing uh, mental health resources. So when I moved out, a therapist, but here's the thing. I ain't going to see anybody. No, I, I will be the first to say this. Like, nope. I was like, I prayed. I said, God, if I'm going to have a therapist, it's going to have to be uh, a black female. Uh, I put also Christian because my religious tradition is Christian. Um, and I think I had another criteria. Uh, oh, PhD. Person has to have a PhD. I can't do just a license. Uh, master's level therapist. I have to have someone with a PhD because I know myself. 
Um, so yeah, I put those criteria in and I found someone who matched those criteria. A unicorn, yes. But yeah, I found someone and who matched um, those criteria. And that was so important to me. And the reason why is because I needed someone to whom I didn't have to explain all of the other things, right? I didn't want to have to explain my religion. I didn't want to have to explain my gender. I didn't want to have to explain my race. I didn't want to have to explain my education to anybody. Like, I just wanted to be able to go to therapy and, um, and be able to talk it out without my therapist having to, like, ask questions like, so, like, what is it like being in a Black family? Or I had, I know, I had, I had, I had, no joke, no joke, no joke. This is one lady, because I, I did shop around for therapists. Mm-hmm. And there's this one lady who said to me, she said, wow. She's like, all the work that you're doing, she's like, you must, like, you're just a very strong Black woman. And that moment, oh. I was like, nope, you're... <laughs> you're not it and that was actually she was like a white woman i was like oh this woman has been waiting all her life to counsel a black woman and it is not going to be me let me tell you (laughs) like i am not going to be your experiments um let me find me a black therapist like this is not gonna work (laughs) um and so and but that's important and i it's also another reason why we need more um people of color who are mental health professionals it is absolutely absolutely so critical um because when we get up out of our uh fighting for our lives and the traumas that we experience like every single day like we need mental health professionals who understand us who know us who could speak our language um who um who suffer the same things we suffer like they understand what it means to want to call in black today and not go to work like they they understand what it means to just um see one of those videos and be traumatized and then not want to see the video again they understand what it means when hollywood comes out with these like slave videos that you don't want to watch any more slave videos like like, please hollywood stop producing slave movies like it's for white people you're educating white people on our history which you should have been doing for the past 400 years but you didn't want to um but now you're traumatizing the rest of the black community uh by producing all of these slave videos and making us rewatch what we already feel in our bones and our bodies that is not okay um because then we feel obligated just to watch those films to or to some extent um because of um well, whatever reason we may feel obligated out. But I think there's a, there's an element of just feeling obligated that we have to support black films, right? Yeah. Um, so we just, we need, another reason why we need black filmmakers, because we need black filmmakers who are gonna understand that that's not what we wanna watch. Right, like <laughs> the black experience as a whole. Yep. Right, exactly. Um, uh, it's so important for people to understand that people are not monolithic and that we're diverse and we need to be represented in all fields of society. Um, Actually, that's a great pivot point. Um, And I'll come back to the mental health thing, but what the work that I'm doing in George Floyd Square community organizing is um, I'm working on the memorial. And so I'm building the memorial with several community members and the Floyd family or members of George Floyd's family, his aunt and his first cousin. Um, and what I'm learning is that there are so few black conservators in the United States of America. 
Like, there's literally only a handful. And compared to the number of museums that exist um, and the jobs and the opportunities that, exi that exist, but like this position is so important because these people are making critical decisions about our art and about our storytelling and how it gets displayed. Um, and we need more black folks in this industry, in this field of right. conservation and art and, and um, artifact care, because we have to be able to tell our own stories because that is so much um, that deeply embedded in racism is the stripping of narrative and the stripping of the ability to tell your own story. Um, and if we allow that work to be outsourced uh, by white professionals, then they will 100% guarantee jack up our story in some way, shape or form because they don't see it through our eyes, right? They don't feel it through our bones. They don't know what it's like to be us. And so we need to develop um, more people of color, more black folks who go into the art sciences. It is so critical, it's so important. Right. I didn't even know this. I stumbled into this this summer. Um, and so, yeah, but anyways, mental health, that was the question. So yeah, I, I went, I found a therapist um, and I started what I call Mondays are my me days in September, 2018. So I had a friend who I think he wanted me to talk to him and he's like, you know, you should really talk to somebody about what you're going through. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to go get my therapist. <laughs> and I think he was like, I, I like, I meant talk to me. I was like, oh no, I just like, I, that's what I was like. I'm going to find a therapist. I'm going to set Monday as my mental health day. And I turned Mondays into my me days. Um, and that was a critical decision. And I still hold to that. Like two years later, over two years later, Mondays are my me days. When I do community organizing work, I tell people, I'm like, hey, I don't set meetings on Mondays. I don't go to the square on Mondays. I don't, um, like I don't, and even my, like my family knows it. Everybody knows it. Like money, like people call me and then I'm like, yeah, it's my me day. And they're like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot. <laughs> because, because people respect, when we set boundaries for our health, I, what I've learned is that people respect those boundaries. And I think oftentimes we get ourselves into a trap thinking that we have to do it all. We have to keep moving. We have to keep pushing. But when we set boundaries and to say, no, like this is what I'm going to do for my health my wellness so I can keep going for the long haul, people will, res will respect that. I learned that from a friend of mine. Um, and so um, Mondays, yeah, Mondays are my me days. And that's uh, the days that I really focus on um, stepping away uh, from business as usual. And I tell folks, they're like, what, what does Mondays usually entail? I said, well, they can entail whatever I want them to entail. I get to talk to whoever I want to talk to. I get to not talk to whoever I don't want to talk to. <laughs> sometimes, it, sometimes I do work on Mondays because my anxiety levels are so high because my task list is so long. And so if I accomplish my task list, my anxiety levels will go down. And so for me, that's health. That's mental health. And right. so I just, and some days I do nothing, but, or my nephew will come to me. Oh, one day I scheduled a meeting on a Monday and I was walking at the house and my nephew who was right next door was like, Hey, Auntie Janelle, can we uh, play homescapes? Which is like a phone game, a computer game. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
um, I'm on my way to a meeting. And he was like, I thought you weren't supposed to have meetings on Monday. I was like, this nine-year-old kid <laughs> is holding me accountable to my self-care days. Okay. I mean, like, that got me on it. I was like, yeah, he's right. I'm not supposed to have meetings on Mondays. Um, and so I, so instead, I try to carve out time with him to, like, have a play date every single Monday. It was, like, at least an hour when he's done with school. Uh, spend at least an hour uh, playing together. And that, I'm like, that helps keep me accountable that, like, I have a play date every single Monday. Yeah. Um, I think the concept of, like, setting boundaries and, like, knowing your own limits is really powerful. Um, so earlier you talked a little bit about, you know, seeing dead Black bodies um, on social media. I think that's, like, a common trend now. Um, it's called Black trauma porn, for anyone who doesn't uh, know what that means. Um, so I guess what advice do you have for people of color who want to protect their mental health in response to this growing trend? first of all thank you for introducing me to that term because i didn't know that was a term because i am terrible with social media yeah. <laughs> oh yeah of course. I, I am like the worst millennial ever like even when it first came out like i just when i was young and my generation was creating facebook i'm like i'm peers with mark zuckerberg and like i just was terrible at it and because there's something for me about being present in the moment. No, I remember what I hated about it. I was in college and I hated that I would post stuff on my Facebook profile and people would come to me and just start talking to me as if they knew everything about me and I had never told them. And right. so I would sit there and I'd be like, this is so awkward. How do you know this information about me? And I realized, oh, they're reading my Facebook profile. Now, this is way before like moms and grandmas were even allowed on Facebook. Like you had to have a you had to have a, a .edu email address in order to actually be on Facebook because it was like exclusive. It was an exclusive uh, oh, social really? media club. Yeah. So it was like it was it was like the entire talk of all the colleges, and it 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 moved slowly from college to college. And I was on the East Coast, so we got it earlier than some colleges uh, because um, yeah, I think it started on the East Coast. And so I um, so yeah, I remember the day when they opened it up, and everyone was like, "Oh crap! Like my mom can be on here." <laughs> <laughs> It just, it changed everything. Um, but yeah, I think um, with social media, I just, it, it's hard for me to um, have people know about my life without actually having a real conversation. Like I prefer human dialogue and human right. engagement and human experience. Um, and I know there's all kinds of research and science around social media and the benefits of it. And I'm like, my brother has made like best friends around the world with gaming and stuff like that. Like super cool. But like, since I was a kid, I was always an old soul and I really love the earth. Like I really love the ground. I really love being present with other bodies. And right. I, I love digging my hands into something real. I love seeing and witnessing things with my own eyes and traveling and breathing in the air. And like, I, I, I prefer it any day over social media. So um, I don't follow trends 
So that's that's the long story of saying this is why I don't follow social media trends and why I'll be so <laughs> ignorant and you will educate me, you will be my teacher. But anyways, yeah. <laughs> black black bodies and media. All right, how do we care for our mental health? Um I you know, first of all, the first step is people have to know themselves, right? People have to understand their limits, their capacity, right. what um who they are and who they are not. Right. And I think that that is the most important step for any human being to take is understand who they are and who they are not and what are their limits. Um, And then to be able to communicate those limits to the people around them. And that's another step and stage communication. Um, And and so that way you could set boundaries and expectations for people to respect those limits. Um, then, and then you also hear it for yourself of what limits that you have and what limits you don't have. So then when you hear that something has happened, a uh, full confession, I've never watched the full George Floyd video. Yeah, same. I couldn't stomach it. I just, yeah, absolutely not. And so, um, and I knew for me, I knew that this was very dangerous uh, when I saw the Alton Sterling video of his execution yeah. and then Philando Castillo, I saw his execution mm-hmm. and back to back. And I remember my body couldn't stop crying. I went to work crying that day. I brushed my teeth crying that day. And I got dressed crying that day. Like I remember that morning so clearly I couldn't stop crying. Um, until I got to work when I had to pull myself together uh, to be strong for other folks. And I just, um, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't stomach another video. And um, there was a time, I think I did watch somebody else's video at some point. And the reason why, because I had a friend who said something powerful that I um, agreed with. Actually, no, it was this year, 2020. This year, 2020, I think it was Sean Reed's video or Ahmad Aubrey's video. It was one of those two, maybe both of them. Mm-hmm. But a friend had said to me, she's like, Janelle, I need to watch the video so I can witness how my brother died. I, I need to watch the video so I can hold somebody accountable for how they're killing the kings of this world. Um, I need to be able to watch the video to be a witness um, to their lynching so that they can see that somebody saw that they died. And um, I thought that was profound and powerful. She was taking for herself, right? She was taking an approach to say, I want to serve as a witness so that I can advocate and fight for their justice. Right, right. and I think that is an absolutely powerful and respected position for me. Like, and so, and I had watched uh, some of the videos because of that. And I, and I had, but I had to prepare myself to do that. Right. And I knew I couldn't watch back to back and I knew I would have to space it out with certain things. And so I had to do what I could do um, to, to say, like, if I'm going to be in this fight and I'm going to be a witness, and I, if I'm going to talk about this on social media, if I'm going to talk about this on podcasts, if I'm going to talk about this in writing, I need to know what I'm talking about right. um, so I can advocate effectively. And, 
And that is trauma on the job. And so that means that I have to do other things to release that trauma. If that means I have to cry, if that means I have to go see my therapist, if that means I have to go for a run, because uh, trauma, um, uh, Resmo Menachem, he, he wrote this book called My Grandmother's Hands, a beautiful book about navigating racial trauma. And um, one of the things he talks about is that trauma is held in the body and it's experienced right. in the body. And so therefore it, it only can be released through the body and through physical action. And so, um, so I had to monitor what trauma am I taking in and then how am I releasing that trauma? Right. Um, how am I taking time to do that? Or I can say, I am not gonna take that trauma on and here's X, Y, Z reasons and I'm gonna stand by that and I ask you to respect that, right? Um, but what I've learned in therapy is that you can't control what others will do, but you can control what you will do. I cannot control what this capitalistic media, uh, social viral media, because I mean, like videos going viral is, is a side effect of capitalism. It really is. Right. Yeah, because people make money once the video hits a certain amount of views, um, but and also it's consumption, right? It's it's re remove the money factor. It's it's just high consumption, and so right. everybody wants to be in the end. People have FOMO; they don't want to miss out. They want to be able to say, "I could see it," and then boom, the video goes viral. Right. Um, and so, how do we then fight those um, feelings within us? to say, I have to see it too. Like, no, you don't. You do not have to see it. Uh, you know what movie I still haven't seen? I still haven't seen Get Out. Look, really? when, Get, when Get Out came as a film, I saw the preview and I was like, absolutely not. That is a horror flick. And my friends were like, isn't that a horror flick? It's a suspense flick. It's really, really good. You need to see it. I said, I didn't say it wasn't good but I did say it was a horror flick. I was like, any movie where a black man is getting hypnotized by white people and can't get out, that is a horror flick. Like that is my childhood <laughs> flip. Like, <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't care what you tell me, that is horrific. <laughs> um, like, so I have not seen Get Out because I just, I like, I feel like, because I grew up going into white schools, right? And so the mm -hmm. idea of being stuck and whiteness and you can't get out is my education like, <laughs> it's, and it's just re-traumatizing so I, I haven't seen it but other folks can see it and they can enjoy it um but that I, I, that film will produce anxiety in, in me and so I still haven't seen the film um so no shade on like Jordan Beale or like yeah. <laughs> or was it Jordan Beale who like who made it, I think it, it was it, Jordan Peele yeah Peele Peele Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I think Peel. Peel. Yeah. So um, no shade on him, but fantastic filmmaker and artist. But um, yeah, I just can't. I can't for my own health. Right. So um, you talked a lot earlier about like how people are like capitalizing off of black debts. I guess a trend that happened this summer was like the movement of Black Lives Matter being like commodified by large brands like Nike and Adidas, you know, to make it seem like they were, I guess, in a sense, woke. Um, what do you have to say to that? Hey, you're asking all the good questions today. Yes. Look at this. <laughs> um, corporations and racial justice. So 
this is has multiple layers to it um, because there's the element where we want corporations to do right by people. We want corporations to do right by humanity, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and so we need to we need them to actually turn their act around. Uh, we need them to actually try to figure out how to do the right thing. Um, that is that is so absolutely critical. Um, I I feel like part of the challenges right now is that um, if they are doing it for optics, so that way. Uh, they can ease their conscience or the conscience of their investors or the conscience of their donors because this is the way whiteness works um, is to say, no, I'm, I'm a good white person. I just want to like, like, I just want to be a good white person. And like, I don't say like, you know, I'm, I'm a good white person. I'm not a racist. I'm not like, like, oh, look, how, this is what I've done to support black folk. Um, so yeah. So if they're doing it for the optics, not a good thing. But if they're doing it for long-term organizational sustainability to actually um, create a longevity of transformation and change and actually shift the balance of power within their organization um, and to not oppress their workers, that's a huge thing, right? Because mm -hmm. racism and capitalism go hand in hand. This country was built on the backs of slaves. Um, and so capitalizing off of Black deaths has happened for over 400 years. Right. Uh, lynchings have happened for over 400 years and then figuring out a way to make money off of somebody else's uh, demise and death. That, that is what this country is built off of. And so it's the same stuff, just 2020 version, if, if they're not careful. Um, and so um, I think what is so critical and important is for um, us to really think about ownership right? How do we think about um, Black ownership in institutions? What does it look like for um, a company to say, we're going to sell our shares to people of African descent or Indigenous people uh, at half the price for, for uh, reparations and racial equity? Like, well, what would that look like? Now, that'd be radical, right? right. I don't know if laws will let them do that or not, but if the laws can't do let them do that, then they should. Um, uh, with their like employees, a lot of companies have hostile work environments. Um, a lot of companies have uh, poor working conditions for their employees. A lot of black folks are uh, the essential workers of a company and they're subject to catching COVID. And they're also have a, um, because of the inequities in the healthcare system um, are not getting treated equitably in the healthcare system and they're more right. likely uh, to die at disproportional rates from right. COVID, right? So there's all of these uh, intersecting factors that are playing in and corporations can um, do a lot uh, because they have so much wealth, like a co company like Nike has a lot of wealth, right? right? So it's like, what are you going to do with your wealth? What are you, how are you going to leverage your agency for racial justice? 
how are you going to leverage your platform for racial justice? If you're doing it just for optics and you hire diversity, equity, and inclusion officer and give them no power to hire or fire um, or reprimand departments, all they can do, like, that'll make no sense. Um, And so we really have to take seriously what we're facing as a nation, and that is a reckoning for our past sins. Um, And so we're looking at a generation that will say, burn it all down um, until we figure out how to do this thing right. Um, And honestly, in many cases, a lot of things actually have to be completely undone. Because if we try to just reform it and we try to reshape it, its foundation, it's still racist. Its DNA is still racist. Um, and so it really needs an entire transformation. Kind of like, you know, COVID, like it, it has a strong, a different strain of the virus now. That's like, mm-hmm. yeah, racism is like that. Racism gets a new strain. Um, it shifts and shapes with uh, different policy changes and different social movements and cultural movements. Um, but it's still racism. And sometimes it's that much right. more deadly. Um, do you truly think Black liberation is possible? Can equality Absolutely. really be, well, do you think it can be achieved with our current systems is more my question. Um, do I think it can be achieved with our current system? Our current system is racist. So right, you can't yeah. achieve racial justice with racism. Um, yeah. <laughs> like the, the system exists to oppress uh, black people, and that's that's just the way it is. I mean, I've met so many people who um, uh, immigrated to the United States from other countries who are black, and they're like, "Yeah, I've never known racism like this before." I'm like, "Welcome to America." <laughs> uh, and and largely, it's because like, yes, racism is an international phenomena, and yes, racism has existed um, in many different places, and yes, the um, the trans-African, uh, transatlantic slave trade, um, what like happened and, and went to different countries and trafficked people. And that's that's another people thing people have to realize is like the story of people who are descendants of African uh, slaves. Um, we didn't migrate, we didn't immigrate, we were trafficked. Right. Like, it wasn't a choice. It was human trafficking. And so when you start with that narrative, it also changes things as well. Um, I think um, what's important, though, to realize is that the way slavery worked, like, uh, someone could argue that slavery in the islands um, were, was way, uh, killed uh, way more people. Um, mm-hmm. Killed way more slaves because what they would do is that they would work their slaves to death literally and then traffic in more slaves right and so what you constantly had was like a new uh a new generation of slaves like every time the old generation died off but they were always like um fresh from being trafficked Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but in the United States, um, in the United States, excuse me, in the United States, what had happened was they decided to breed slaves instead of 
keep trafficking the same volume of slaves. And so they would, quote unquote, you know, take care of their slaves, you know, make sure their slaves were nice and happy. Um, yeah. uh, they have happy slaves and good slaves. And they were breeding slaves on their plantations to have more slaves. They weren't trafficking the same volume um, from Africa, but they were breeding human slaves, chattel slavery. And that's what makes it so grotesque and so different. And that's what makes racism here so different is because when you're born into a, a mental mindset that you are not free, like you have already started as a, at a disadvantage in human history. Right. Um, it is one thing, it is a horrific thing to be trafficked, but the gift that exists is that you were born into freedom and you know what it's like to hope to be free again. Right. I mean, there are stories of people who jumped off of slave ships because they were like, I'd rather die than be in bondage, right? To have mm -hmm. that understanding of like, no, this is not right. This is not humane. This is not the life that God carved out for me. And so I will jump into the ocean before I let these men um, keep me enslaved. That kind of the courageousness um, of our ancestors, I mm -hmm. deeply respect. Uh, because that is something that for generations, people in the United States of America did not have because all right. they ever knew was bondage. And so then that legacy plays out within uh, uh, people who are descendants of slaves in America. Um, the legacy of being born a slave um, plays out. And we have to do that much more work of undoing um, generational trauma, right? right. Because yep. if you're taught to think a certain way, um, if you're taught to behave a certain way, if you're taught to treat white people a certain way because you were born a slave and your ancestors were born a slave, like, like that stuff is deeply embedded into the systems of how we operate in the United right. States. Is deeply embedded into the systems of capitalism in the United States. Um, it's the United States is one of the most powerful countries in the world because it had free labor. Like you build a company and never pay your employees, um, and then keep all the proceeds for yourself and for your shareholders, and see how rich you get. Right. The fact that also slaves haven't been given reparations is an important thing to note. You know, people say, Absolutely. you know, move on from slavery. It's been like, what, 400 years and you guys are still complaining. But at the same time, people are still suffering as a result. I think that's important. Absolutely. And then what people will say is, well, um, I didn't like I didn't own a slave. So it's not my fault. Um, right. and so therefore, I shouldn't be responsible. Look, let me tell you something. When. Um, when someone inherits a company, they inherit the entire legacy of that company for better or for worse. They inherit both the debt um, and uh, the whatever profits that have been made. Like they, they inherit it all. Like, and that is important to keep in mind because then that means that they're responsible for it all. Right. So if white people 
inherit opportunity, if they inherit wealth, if they inherit privilege, if they, uh, whatever it is that they inherit because of the legacy of racism in the United States, that means that they then are also responsible for everything that they inherit and the outcomes right. for it. Right. Um, and so, and the other thing we have to remember is that racism is a white people's problem. Black people did not create it. We didn't like, we didn't sign off on it. Like white people created it for white people. Um, right. And, and therefore the onus is on white folks to actually undo it. Have you ever noticed, I like saying this, have you ever noticed that like white people in America are like super innovative, like all the time until it comes to undoing racism? Then people are like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I'm like, wait a minute, create social media. You can, um, what, else do, what else do white folks do? They built cars, they invent stuff. I mean, like we had that whole um, TV show, Shark Tank, where people right. are constantly inventing stuff all the time. Like we invented the game of basketball. We invent, like, we invent stuff all the time. White folks invent right. stuff all the time when it comes to dealing with racism and then they have no idea what to do but they created racism they invented racism right and i think um you know the concept of like performative activism as well is a problem with that you know um like white people saying you know i've done my part to help racism i've signed my petition i can't really do more and like i guess a trend that also goes along with that is like the trend of like posting a black square on your Instagram feed and putting oh, yeah, black lives was. matter and you've done your part. So I guess what does true allyship look like for white people? What does it truly mean to be an ally? Yeah, I, I, I don't fully navigate that. I, I try to get people to move from allyship to advocate. Right. Like, I need people to move to say, not just like, Oh, I, I, see that there's a problem and I want to acknowledge it with my own voice but to say like I'm actually going to take initiative to undo the problem become an advocate um I just think allyship has become a problematic term um I think it's also like a war term and I don't know how I feel about war uh, <laughs> um I, but maybe this, but at the same time, maybe this is exactly what we're in. We're in a war, we're fighting for our very lives. So maybe I have to adjust my, even my own understanding of what that means. But yeah, I, allyship, um, white people doing the most, uh, doing one thing, think they've done everything. Uh, it's just like, shut up, sit down, listen, because you don't have to live with my black skin. I think I've yelled at a lot of white people this summer and didn't, I, you can hear it in my voice. My voice is gone, man. Like, it's just so annoying because it's like, until you live in my black skin and know what it's like to live um, and walk this earth, being a black person in America, you don't get to say a thing. Right. Not a thing. And basically, whatever I say that you're lacking in, look, you're lacking in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the way it is. Um and you may not like it, it may be frustrating, and I may yell at you, and I may keep yelling at you because of my trauma. Um, but it's just like, you're just gonna have to deal with that. Um, this is how I feel about that. And so if I think that what allyship looks like in a particular situation has changed, um, then it's changed and you need to adjust right. 
with that. Um, it's just, it's just, it's constantly, we're constantly moving. We're constantly fighting and it's the situation is dynamic and it's constantly changing. Right. And so I can't have you all up in your feelings and thinking it's about you and self-centering. Um, be, yeah. Being self-centered and saying, well, I've done this and I did that. I don't care what you've done. Like there's still more work to do. I am still doing, this is my life. Right. That is at stake. My very well-being. This is my the well-being of my family, the well-being of my nephews. Like, um, if we don't do something, they we literally could die. That's that's how I feel about all of that. We just need to get over themselves. Yeah, and you know, I think <laughs> that's, no, you're good. <laughs> I I completely agree. So I think it's also important to note that like the burden is placed on black people and like their bodies and their mental health to educate white people rather than them actually taking the initiative to like learn more about like the injustice that um, black Americans have faced. And I also think it's important that um, we recognize that like our education system isn't really doing that much to um, like explain the history of slavery. Like, and I guess like a tangential point is that like, you know, how our education system, like, talks about, like, Thanksgiving, um, since Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. just passed, like, how they treat Thanksgiving as, like, you know, some happy, like, feast, when that just wasn't what it was, um, what are your Mm -hmm. thoughts on, like, how the education system has, like, I guess, promoted these narratives? See, absolutely, here's the thing, that the education system is, is, is whitewashed and racist to its core, and it's the, it's the means through which, racism is perpetuated like racism can continue to exist because people are trained to think a certain way and not just white people right right? whiteness as an ideology exists because how we educate people to think in these colonized countries um is through a lens of white superiority right um and it's subliminal in so many different ways. So when you go into a classroom and there are no books by black authors, uh, when you go into a, a institution and there are no black professors, when full-time uh, professors, right? Tenured professors, right. like that's all institutionalized racism. When you uh, go to an institution um, and the black kids are being presumed by their teachers to be uh, violent or dumb or stupid or ADHD uh, because um, they're black and male, we label kids and say, you're unteachable. That doesn't make any sense, right? Um, And so the educational system from, I mean, when you have the school to prison pipeline, marking kids out at third grade, to be actually thrown into prison, like the educational mm-hmm. system exists to continue whiteness. Um, they don't look at white kids in the third grade and say, we're going to make prison beds for you. No, they look at right. black kids in the third grade test scores and say, we're going to make prison beds for you. Like that, like it's all racism. I chewed out a friend once because she had just started as a counselor in um, a school system in Compton. And I said, hey, how was your first day? She said, like, I had to suspend a kid. I said, you do what? And she was like, well, he got in a fight and he had, I was like, no, 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 no. 
you suspended him because out of fear you didn't know how to handle that kid you should why are you suspending he's like a fourth grader or fifth grader maybe i don't know but um i'm like why are you suspending him where is he gonna go for those three days who's gonna educate him how is his parents like gonna stay home from work to supervise him that's gonna jeopardize like so much of their home stability and um of whatever they have going for them and then and then on top of that, that kid is going to be three days behind in classwork because he's mm-hmm. not with the students. And so you suspending him because he acted out in class as opposed to saying, hey, let's have a conversation and figure out where this is coming from and find alternative ways to actually engage your behavior. Like, like but you out of your scared white womanness of a, of a tiny little black male child, um, you exerted racialized power and suspended him on your first day on the job. That is what he expected you to do to him. And you just lived right into that stereotype of whiteness. Right. And she was so mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I also did that at a Christmas party, I think too. So it probably wasn't the best timing, but I was upset. I'm like, I defend my little, my little black Kings. Like, yeah. yeah. You know, black children aren't like afforded the same liberty of like being children you know like for example like the sexualization of like black girls and like how black boys are treated as if they're men you know how our children are almost forced to become adults at a young age you know they aren't given the same liberty of like childhood as white children absolutely in so many cases um and then what's so fascinating is when you get black families who are middle class or upper middle class or even like super wealthy black families who are trying to give their kids a sense of what they believe to be normal and then uh lower economic black folks uh will look at them and say oh why are you acting white right and so that sense of upward mobility equals being white and somehow you've distanced yourself from your culture because you've tried to give your kids a better education because you tried to give your kids a different experience than what you had um so i um yeah i just think that that is something that we have to work on in the black community of being able to figure out how to not claw each other down because we're trying to reimagine for ourselves what should our experiences be like being free. We talk about black liberation, right? We have to constantly ask the question, what does black liberation look like? Because right. I can tell you that at every level of society, as I meet, encounter, and talk to black folks, there is still some kind of chain that they are fighting to uh, undo. Um, within their field of work, within their level of society, whatever it is, like their blackness um, has caused some form or shape of bondage um, that is put on them externally, not necessarily internally, uh, but that that the systems and the processes uh, are trying to place on them um, regardless of how much money they make. Um, I mean, like, you look at um, professional athletes. They're making millions and millions of dollars. 
but how many uh, of them actually own teams? Like how many black retired professional athletes actually own teams versus how many black athletes play in teams? Like, let's think about that. How many, like there's never been a black commissioner of a major league sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, like all of these black players, um, how is it that we can play for people's entertainment, but we can't actually be in charge and run the show of how our entertainment is played? Right. And, you know, the theme of like the use of black bodies, um, it's in this book that I read um, in English class called um, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, So do you have any like book, movie, uh, theory recommendations for anyone who wants to like learn more about the struggle for black liberation? Oh, yes. Um, I now recommend that people read history books by black people because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's the first step we have. If the school systems jacked us up, um, and we actually got a whitewashed understanding and knowledge of history. That means mm-hmm. we have to go and relearn history. It's like the story of black liberation is the story of history. Right. And so we have to read like, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., um, and he's a black historian, phenomenal black historian. He has multiple books out. Uh, we need to read, read even, um, hold up, this book is right here on my shelf. Um, uh, Ibram Kendi Stamped from the Beginning. That's the thick one. The newer one is a remix for young people. It makes it uh, easier to digest. Um, is Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism in You. And that reads pretty smoothly. Um, My friends just gave me a book for my birthday called African American Poetry, 250 Years of Struggle and Song. I am so excited to engage this book because it's like, it's it's history, right? Right. right. It's poetry written in that time, in that moment, and you can hear people's, uh, you can hear, hear people's cries uh, for something different, for something more, for something just, um, and in their imaginations of what justice looks like. Uh, go back, listen to the songs, listen to the Negro spirituals, listen to jazz, gospel, blues, um, um, soul, like, and listen to the development of music over the centuries and decades and generations because you will hear within it uh, hip hop, even man, raps. Listen to it all, and hear within them um, the struggle for freedom. Right. Um, I think that like it's all critical, and like even sonically, when you're talking about music, like everybody knows that there's a huge difference between white people's music and black people's music. Like yeah. it's just, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. just. <laughs> and you know, it's so funny because there's more. Um, in sync and in tune with black people's music in America and black people's music in different parts of Africa, <laughs> sonically, than there is with white people's music here. Um, and then it's also so fascinating that I've, I've learned from some of my friends who spent time in Japan 
that there is an appreciation for uh, African American music in Japan mm-hmm. and and even in Korea as well, and I think South Korea. And I think part of that, at least my understanding, is that part of that is because they understand struggle and oppression, and they're. And the, the music that we produce speaks to their soul in a way that it like it matches of like, it's a kind of speaking to somebody else's struggle um, and identifying with it and empathizing with somebody else's struggle. Um, and so, yeah, I think, but when, when white music, it doesn't come from a place of struggle. Right. Like it comes from a place of power and privilege. Mm-hmm. And so it just sounds differently. Or even in, even in the churches. So my, my background, my background training is theology. Mm-hmm. So you go into to a white Christian church and um, you may hear language like, you know, we need to, um, we need to, like, oh, what did I hear? I also went to Christian schools growing up as well. I remember in college, somebody was preaching about like doubt and um, like sacrifice. And it was, there was something else in there. I'm looking for the word and I can't really find it, but it's like in like poverty, like humility or something like that. But it was this, this element of like, we need to, lower ourselves and find our sins and find what's wrong with us so that we can have a reason for God to forgive us. And I would always laugh at that because growing up in a black church, like people didn't need to dig hard to find a reason for God to forgive them. (laughs) It was just like, y'all, okay. So this last week I didn't fail. Here I am back again. (laughs) Like, like it wasn't the sense of piety of like, oh, I am good and I am perfect and mm-hmm. um, I need to think really hard or I need to um, give up things to become poor so that God will see me because because God loves the poor. And the church I grew up in is like, okay, we are poor and we ain't trying to be poor no more. So <laughs> <laughs> like, we, we, like this whole theology of trying to become poor ain't going to work for us. Um, and so... Um, and this like trying to become doubtful. It's like, but when you live in the context of pain and struggle, like doubt is very privileged theology. Like, and the reason why I say this is because when you live with oppressors constantly weighing you down that you have been trying for 400 years to overcome, you have to believe that there is a power greater than you who can save you from your situation. Mm-hmm. And so doubt comes with the territory because when you're looking after 400 years, hopelessness, like I tell people all the time on the streets when I'm community, community organizing, I said hopelessness is my greatest enemy because when people lose hope that the situation will ever change, they stop fighting, mm-hmm. right? They absolutely stop fighting um, and they stop believing that they can actually be free, that freedom is actually possible, that they're actually something that they deserve. Like hopelessness 
is our greatest enemy. Yes. Yeah. So I guess then what do you have to say to people who, you know, argue that, you know, God, you know, saw slavery happening, saw racism happening, but decided not to intervene? How do you like react to that message? Yeah, I think those are tough questions and those are questions that need to be asked. Um, and, and, and they come down to questions about what do we believe about God and what do we believe about humanity and what do we believe about freedom, mm-hmm. right? Um, and what freedom looks like and uh, how um, and, and, and human choices and decisions and decisions to oppress um, and making a decision to not oppress, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, I do not understand the mind of God. I don't have that right. privilege. Um, so I can't always speak to uh, the shoulda, coulda, woulda's that I feel like God should have done, right? Like, why didn't God swoop down and intervene from George Floyd and just give like Derek Chauvin a one-two punch, right? <laughs> but then I guess, I could also ask the same question, you know, like, why didn't we as a community swoop down and give Derek Chauvin a one-two punch? Yeah, that's fair. Right? Yeah. Right? Like, what kind of power within us do we have? Like, do we even see the divine in us to move with power as a people to say, you know what? We believe, we, we believe that we are free because this is our divine right (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you don't have the divine right to take our life life away right Mm -hmm. and so i think a lot of it has to do with again it comes back to our mental health and mentality to say how are we going to stand up for ourselves i think um it is important for us to question god it's Mm -hmm. absolutely critical for us to question god um, and so, and I think that's the challenge is it's easy to blame God when bad things happen. It's a lot harder to look at each other and say, how are we going to live differently? How are we going to actually be in community? And that is the work that we're doing in George Floyd Square. Really like that's the community organizing, trying to figure out what does community look like? How do we live it out on a regular day-to-day basis? Um, yeah, God's not going to swoop in like a superhero because that's what white characters do in the stories. <laughs> right. Like, God's not white. God doesn't swoop in and save the day um, in such a way where everyone is just like, oh, look at the superhero. We have a savior. Like that. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't like go in and carry planes and make them land safely on the ground. God, nope, God doesn't do that. Okay, so um, Janelle, what does your ideal future for Black Americans look like? I think that that is a question that has to be answered in the context of community um, because um, the way um, represent reparations um did not go (laughs) like i think now we have like an exponential deficit of justice right and so we need people who are different parts of society i like i opened this conversation with really talking about 
that we need black people in different industries and in different parts of society to be able to speak right. into what's what. And I honestly believe that only they can honestly tell the most holistic truth of what is needed and in where they live and work and operate it. I can't tell right. a black doctor what black liberation looks like for him or her. Mm-hmm. I can't tell a black filmmaker what black liberation looks like for her or him or them. I can't tell um, a black teacher what black liberation looks like in the school system or um, like, I like, so we, that needs to be done in the context of community. And I think it is a, um, a guise of whiteness to be able to try to narrow it down to one thing and to say, okay, y'all get one thing out of this movement. I'm like, no, nah, it's been 400 years. We at least get 400 things. Right, <laughs> like, right. At least. <laughs> like, right. uh, and so really, um, this is saying, you know, this needs to be done in the context of community. And though consensus will probably not likely happen because we're so diverse and we're so different, we're not monolithic. I think it creates room for voices to be at the table and to say, okay, how do we help as many voices actually um, be liberated in whatever that liberation looks like? Right. So um, I guess my final question is, um, well, what advice do you have for people who are like new to entering um, the fight for, you know, black liberation? How can, um, I guess, your everyday person get involved in the fight for equality? Have grace for yourself. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we're hard on ourselves when we mess up or we don't know what to do or we feel all the emotions and we feel like cussing somebody out or... (laughs) um, (laughs) Uh, like we're all in our feelings um, or we're thinking we're all in our thoughts and we're thinking too much. I think it's like people just need to have grace for yourself and grace for each other. We're mm-hmm. all human and we're all trying to figure this thing out at the exact same time. Um, and I think that especially people of color, we need to have grace for ourselves and we need to understand um, that our fight for liberation and our resistance is also embodied in our self-care. Mm-hmm. Self-care is not something that we do so that we can fight. Self-care is also a part of the fight itself right. because whiteness and racism refuses to allow us to rest. And so by allowing our bodies to rest, we actually push against the systems that say that we as black bodies are not allowed to rest, right. that we have to work, 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 work. Um, and so, and produce more for white systems to make more money like so i think it's important for us to embrace rest as resistance and embrace self-care as resistance um so yeah so those two things i would say grace for yourself grace for others um and embrace self-care as resistance to injustice i think that's beautiful advice uh thank you so much for your time janelle i really appreciate it (laughs) you're you're very welcome As I reflect on my conversation with Janelle, I think a lot about the world that she wants to see. A kinder world. A more just world. While editing the interview audio, I found myself particularly inspired by Janelle's response to the question, is black liberation truly possible in our lifetimes? Janelle's response evoked a kind of optimism that, I must admit, was almost jealous of. I, and I presume many people who are listening as well, often find myself feeling pessimistic about the state of the world. Janelle taught me to tap into my inner joy, 
and see that the liberation of black people is possible within our lifetimes. And it can only occur with the dismantling of imperialist, capitalist institutions. It is only a matter of time before the oppressed are truly liberated. If you'd like to keep up with Janelle's work, her social media is at J-E-A-N-E-L-L-E-A-U-S-T-I-N at Janelle Austin for all social media platforms. If you want to keep up with the work being done in memory of George Floyd, follow at GFG Memorial on all platforms. Janelle would like me to share that there is a global day of prayer coming up on Monday, March 8th in memory of George Floyd. If you are financially able to, she asks that you please donate to the supply drive being done in George's name by Venmoing at DollarUp, at D-O-L-L-A-R-U-P. All donations and supplies support the community at George Floyd Square and local neighbors. Descent was created, edited, and produced by me, Muna Ali, for my Global Scholars Senior Project. Global Scholars is a program dedicated to promoting a global perspective within the Central Ohio high school community. Special thanks to my advisors, Brandon Allen and Kendra Polito, for their advice and guidance. I'd also like to thank Nicole Wright from Peace Catalyst International for connecting me with several of my guests. And lastly, I'd like to thank Janelle Austin for taking time out of her busy schedule to speak with me. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for our next episode.